0: Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we usually read the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Today, however, as a little bonus, we're going to tell you about some media we ingested over the holidays, just because we wanted to and not because we were podcast obligated, as usual. Uh, Hannah, what would be your guess as to how many, not how many books we read, but how many books were covered? On the Authorized Podcast in the year of our LORT 2022.
1: Uh, books, not just things, right? Just books? Books, okay. not,
0: and not just novelizations. Got it. Books.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I would guess around
0: 45? Mm.
1: 65. Oh, dear. <laughs> I was like, cool, well, we did one episode a week, so that must mean slightly less because they weren't all books, but no.
0: As much as life is speeding by... When I think back to what a year of authorized actually it is, actually is, it does make time feel long. Like the first book of 2022 was the first Batman and Robin. That
1: oh, was so long ago.
0: I know, Wild. but that means that it includes things like the three book Sixth Sense episode mm-hmm. and the f- uh, seven yeah. book High School Musical. Oh, episode. Oh, you counted and- all
1: of those. Yeah, that would bump it up. That makes sense. That would bump it up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are your hosts a Loose Coalition of Novelization Enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby.
1: And I'm Hannah Blackman. I am Hannah, how are
0: you Hi. doing today? You finally got what you wanted. You got like three weeks to read things that weren't for the podcast. Did it fulfill?
1: I mean, I dropped the ball, I would say. It was nice to be able to read things for myself. I didn't get through as many things as I had hoped. But yeah, it was great. It was good. How, how about you? Did you enjoy reading things for you?
0: Yeah, oh, I've been reading up A Storm. I've, like, uh, come into sort of an, an audiobook renaissance as well, which I'll get into. Mm-hmm. Uh, I discovered that I had a second Audible subscription that I'd just been building up credits. Oh. That was on my college email address. And I recovered that, and now I have, like, $700 worth of audiobooks that I can ah, buy.
1: damn!
0: So, this is uh, somewhat freeform, although I did give you homework. Yes. To start off, what what did you read in the yeah. the couple of weeks when I let you be your well, own person? I read three
1: things. I think I would say, um, maybe I should double check my Goodreads that I'm not forgetting one.
0: Oh, and let me know what was your number for 2022 for books read.
1: Uh, well, now that I'm already in Goodreads, let me see if I can find out. I know that they have like stat functions. I this. This app is so goofy. Do you know what I mean?
0: I have also finally joined Goodreads and I'm doing it the right way because when I joined Letterboxd, yeah. it was like August of a year mm-hmm. and it just fucked me up to be like, oh, but what did I actually watch this year? Because there were seven months unaccounted yeah. for. I joined Goodreads on, I think, January 2nd I'm of proud this of you. Year. I was so
1: excited to get that little <laughs> notification at my Goodreads. I was like, I can't wait to follow Andrew. Um, <laughs> Goodreads says that I read 64 books. In 2022. Wow. Yeah. And most of them are novelizations, yes, but some of them are not. Okay, yeah, I would say during the break, I have what I read. So during the break, I read Friend of the Podcast Mark Stays, The Crow Folk, which is The Witches of Woodville One.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Um And you've come here today to just eviscerate. No,
1: nope. uh -uh, Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Nope. (laughs) I also read Motel of the Mysteries. By David McCauley, which is Uh an illustrated sort of, like, short thing. It's fiction? It is fiction. I'll talk about it. I figured we'd do an overview and then we'd get into them. Yeah, that sounds great. So I'll tell you more about it. But it is... I read it in one sitting. It's very quick. My dad gave it to my birthday, gave it to me for my birthday, because he really likes it. And then for the past six Mm -hmm. months, he's been like, have you read it yet? So I finally just, like, put it on the calendar and I read it. And then I read... The Harlow Giles <laughs> Unger biography of John Quincy Adams, which of all the biographies of him I chose because it had the nicest portrait of him on the cover, <laughs> and I believe that when the author chooses a flattering picture of the subject, that is the sign of an affectionate um, biography. And I,
0: yeah, there's true care. Yeah, in mm. my in my reading research,
1: what Amazing. did you read?
0: Oh, should we jump into yours first? Oh, do you think?
1: I, I don't know. Why don't you give like a little like sneak peek about the basics of what you read and then we can go back and forth. Okay,
0: so I will be briefly speaking on uh, The Secret History by mm-hmm. Donna Tart, which I listened to as a like a 30 hour audiobook <laughs> read by the author, questionable choice. <laughs> I read, oh, I like I said, I've gotten way into audiobooks again, and so I... With the announcement of the TV series, I was like, let me go back and reread Stephen King's The Dark Tower.
1: All of them or just the first one?
0: All of them. Wow. Because I had only read half of them to begin with. When I was like 14, I picked up book one and I think I read the first four. And the fourth one is like almost an entire book of backstory. And my 14 year old brain just couldn't handle it. Mm. I was like, "Ah, I want forward motion. And I I jumped ship. So I'm now, I'm currently listening to those books again. And I guess I'll just say everything I have to say about these now, because there's okay. not too much. But I had a funny uh, reaction to going back to the Dark Tower, which you, you haven't read, right? I've Hannah? never
1: read a Dark Tower. No.
0: I think back on this series, the four books I read, and I think of it as this sort of like uh, bombastic fusion of of fantasy and sci-fi and western because it's essentially a story of like some old westy guy hunting someone that we assume at first to be a criminal and then it very slowly comes out that like they are players in some sort of like multi-dimensional war or something Uh, i never got to the end of the series so i guess i'll report back (laughs)
1: there like 15 of them or something
0: there are seven Oh, okay uh and then king went back and wrote a book that takes place between four and five
1: are you gonna read them in publish order or chronologically in oh i'll read them in
0: chronological order so
1: you're gonna do like one two three four eight five exactly cool okay
0: i'm a i'm a big believer like because if you're writing something that is like a prequel or whatever Unless it's a Star Wars situation, where it's like there's an argument to be made that like you should watch four and five first so that you don't know the twist, mm-hmm. whereas the prequels would give the twist away. Indeed. In- unless it's something like that, I want to see whether you succeeded at inserting something into your continuity mm-hmm. with my virgin eyes. Makes sense. I famously watched Halloween 2018 right after watching Halloween 1978 for the first time. <laughs>
1: You're a hero and a king. It's true.
0: Anyway, the thing that shocked me about these books is I I went back and I I was listening to The Gunslinger, which is the the first one where he's just like chasing this guy across the desert. And I was like, this is kind of a snooze. Like, yeah, there were some big action sequences and whatnot, but I wasn't getting the genre bending that I wanted.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: It was just sort of like oh, I gotta catch this guy, oh, you know, I'm I'm sleeping with a sex worker now, she betrayed me. Just It was really Western. And so at the end of the first book, I was like, I guess I'll keep going. I don't know if this is such a good idea. He goes to sleep, I mean, spoilers for the Dark Tower, the character goes to sleep on the beach at the end of the first book, And the beginning of the second book is he wakes up because a lobster-type monster has already chewed several of his fingers off.
1: (laughs) Steven. Oh, my God. He's
0: like, no, shooting guns. That's my whole thing. Oh, no. And he finds a door just on the beach that takes him to our reality Mm -hmm. in which essentially... you open up the door and you're like in someone's head seeing out of their eyes and you are like a voice in their head and it's just him talking to this like heroin addict who's trying to smuggle cocaine on a commercial flight and the the whole time he's like I'm a real guy you're not crazy I'm in your head and the guy's like what do you want what do you want he's like would you believe I want antibiotics
1: (laughs) Wow, Stephen King, what a guy! Wow, I
0: really am in love with like the specificity of it, and and uh, that's what he does. Best, I yeah,
1: I I, yeah, I we don't talk know about this I, a little I, between us. What's that? That what Stephen King does best is like detail and specificity, in, in places that most authors wouldn't bother.
0: Yeah, and I think that, but I, I by specificity, I also mean like the abandonment of like a larger uh moral or idea like there there is a part of this book or there is like a a, an element to this book that makes me think he just thought it would be interesting if someone Mm -hmm. if the voice in your head had a physical need i need medicine you know And, and as opposed to that being like in service of some larger idea or theme or whatnot it's just a crazy fucking thing to put in a book
1: what a yeah cool well, I hope you continue to have fun with those.
0: Yeah, I'm just getting everything I want from them now that I'm on book two. In so. which
1: book does the protagonist meet author Stephen King?
0: I believe it's like book five or six. Okay. I, I've I heard never that reached it. That's a
1: it. thing that happens.
0: Yeah, I never reached it on my first uh, my first read through. Anyway, sorry, I went kind of deep on that. I read those, and then I read, of course, uh, the 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 twenty fifth hour, which was made into a a movie. Uh, with the title 25th Hour, because mm. it's cleaner.
1: And as I discovered yesterday, there is a movie from the 60s called The 25th Hour.
0: There is, yeah. I've never Which watched I, that seems one. different. Seems really different. <laughs> um, and yes, and, and Hannah was nice enough to uh, watch that film so that I could discuss the differences. So yeah. I'll be going pretty deep on Can't that. wait.
1: Exciting. Well, let me very briefly, I guess. I don't know. I'll, let me talk crow folk. And then you can talk yeah. secret history. And then I'll talk Motel of the Mysteries. And then mm. I feel like there's a little bit, you know, you can go hardcore deep onto 25th Hour. And then I'll go light on uh, John Quincy. Oh,
0: you're going to go li- light on Quincy?
1: We can go medium on Quincy. I just feel like mm. it's not, you know, I don't, nobody needs to hear me recite his life. I'll just say
0: Great. a couple of things
1: about the book. Anyway, I do want to say about The Crow Folk. It's a good book it moved really fast it's spooky it's like spookier than I thought it would be there's a it's Mm -hmm. about um, basically like the devil comes to town in the form of a scarecrow and brings to life a bunch of other scarecrows um, Mm -hmm. with spoilers the souls of local dead people inside of them
0: oh my god yeah
1: so there's just like a scarecrows are spooky they have it's spooky imagery to imagine a bunch of like loosey-goosey scarecrows like tromping through town sure they chase a guy and kill him in a way that is (laughs) very scary um and especially like the main scarecrow like the leader of the scarecrows is like so unbelievably sinister um and the lead character is like a 17 year old girl and i was like is this pumpkin man gonna kill her (laughs) like he wants to (laughs) kill her because she is a witch girl um and i just found it like very intriguing. There's a lot of little like things sprinkled, and like the characters are very like charming and richly drawn. And also, it spooked me out. Like it genuinely gave me heebie-jeebies, which is a success for any book. And to before do. the
0: plot sets in, this yeah. is low fantasy. These people are not used to magic.
1: No, no. It's sort of like that sort of cutesy, like oh, that old hag down the street is such a witch. You know, she's a witch, and everyone's like, mm-hmm. well, that's not. Call her a witch. That's a little aggressive. And, and the the feeling. <laughs> Before the scarecrows come to life, is I think that this town does understand that magic happens around them, but because they're like tight upper-lip British folk, they ignore it completely and are like, "Well, it wasn't magic, that's insane." And like, right. can't see what they don't believe in, you know? Which is also a cool concept that the book engages with in nice ways. And I just, boy, did I have a nice time reading it? And as I texted you, it's fun having spoken to Mark. That there are parts of this book, I was like, I could just hear him saying these sentences. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. his rhythms, his sort of like the fun ways that he describes like people and the way that they are and exist. I was like, ah, there he is, that's Mark. So I had a really good time with it. I had a blast reading this little book, and I—it's funny he always two.
0: describes uh, the plots <sighs> of these books with such a sense of whimsy and wonder (laughs) that it is i mean i'm excited to read them and i I will i also have his novelization of of the movie he wrote Mm -hmm. i gotta i gotta read all these but uh i definitely wasn't expecting you to say that it was creepy
1: i wasn't expecting it to be creepy like this um also because all of the like pull quotes on the book are like so delightful what fun so light and charming and then uh it's it scared me there's stuff in it that was like scary So that was a very pleasant surprise to me, actually, to be... I thought I was getting one thing. I got something slightly different, but I liked it a lot. I liked it more. Wow. Do you think you'll proceed to the second book? Yeah, I do.
0: Wow. I
1: don't know when, (laughs) but (laughs) I hope to, because I really did enjoy this first one.
0: for For the listener, I meant to say this up top, if you're listening to a bonus episode on what we read for fun, and you're like, how is this any different? They don't do novelizations anymore. We have like... 20 in the can they are coming
1: <laughs> is this really gonna come out at a point where we like haven't done a real novelization in like a month and a half
0: i might put this out tomorrow
1: great okay
0: but i just mean like you know we're, we're we do all sorts of bonuses and we're doing tertiary tomes right okay. now but after national treasure there's so we have recorded so many novelization episodes, it's gonna make your head spin. I'm
1: so excited for some of those to come out and for people to be like that one.
0: Yeah, and for guests as they always are to be like, Oh, yeah, I did that. <laughs> I
1: remember that now. <laughs>
0: um, I guess I'll go the secret history. I loved it. This is a book that uh, was recommended to me uh, first by my girlfriend, although it was a real one of those things where once one person was recommending it to me, suddenly everyone I knew re- had read it
1: yeah and was bringing it's a it up very popular book.
0: Sure, okay. but um as I've mentioned on another episode, my girlfriend has a habit of whenever we're watching anything that has any intrigue of telling me that it's just like the secret <laughs> history.
1: Did you find that to be true? <laughs>
0: Uh, I can't go back and review four hundred instances, <laughs> but ultimately, I did not think Decision to Leave was that much like The Secret History. <laughs> that was a recent one. Yeah, I really, uh, you know, for for those who haven't read it, which apparently it's super famous, so I'm the last one to get to it. But it is uh, about a, a guy that goes off to it's undergrad, right? Mm-hmm. He's like he's like nineteen and essentially is like immediately assimilated into this uh, clique that is like uh, the, the, the Greek scholars at the school and their weird professor that they all have like uh, an unhealthy amount of reverence for. And, uh, you know, essentially the secrets are bred within that group and the, the ball gets rolling in that story because uh, a bunch of people in this clique have maybe done a homicidal thing and everyone's like what do we do about knowing that like Mm -hmm. do we tell do we not tell i listened to it on audiobook it was read by author donna tart who i ultimately came around to but the reason was that she does like a horribly annoying voice for the one character who is the victim of the homicide who is also horribly annoying he is horribly annoying but uh she made a choice once, on
1: purpose
0: once he shed his mortal coil there's a car alarm going crazy on my end maybe that'll be on the episode oh, i can't once, hear it oh great once he sheds his mortal coil his voice is no longer in the book and it's a fun time oh great i thought that the sort of the coup of this book was that it's preyed upon or embodied or I don't know what verb I want to use the sense memory or like utilizes your sense memory of being in school and putting way too much weight on friendly relationships in the context of a group Mm -hmm. you know like it really made me think back to like in college when I would hang out with five people and I'd get a text before we met up that was like Yeah, just so you know, like, John's in a really bad mood today. Like, he and Catherine aren't doing so well. And then you'd, like, show up and be like, I know to be on the ready. It was like, you know, you you create this false little ecosystem that in reality is not important. But you just decide, because you're living in a bubble, that it's, like, the most important thing. And uh, that was a compelling way to, like, get these characters to do things that no rational human... Would do. I mean, not to get all like uh, narrative theory on us here, but it's one of the challenges of writing any sort of story with intrigue, right? Is you're like, how do I convincingly get someone to do something that is wacko? And I think that's a motivation I hadn't seen before, which is like, you
1: want to fit in so bad.
0: Yeah. Even though, like yeah. everybody else
1: also wants to fit in so bad, you could all just be chiller. And instead, they go insane.
0: <laughs> totally. Totally. Uh, this also sparked the debate between you me and my my girlfriend which is my girlfriend was like i would kill bunny the character yeah. who's basically like i know you did a bad thing and and i'm going to tell maybe he really likes to be like maybe yeah <laughs> yeah she was like i would do it to fit in i think and she totally agrees she that i just have too too much like guilt it's a too too large a capacity for guilt to do it. I feel like I would just immediately run to someone and be like, "They're gonna kill him." I think. <laughs> and Hannah, you had a you had a wild take.
1: Well, okay i i would I would probably kill him to fit in. I want that to be clear. I'm a real follower. Oh, oh okay. I, I think that is a thing that everyone should know about me. I will follow the group. I would join mm. a cult at any second. That's established. But I did say I would not kill Bunny. <laughs> Because I liked him, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I don't think he should be murdered. It's the most wild opinion possible. She Both w- your
1: girlfriend and you were like, that's psychotic, and you need well, help.
0: Well, he's so annoying. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, I don't know. <laughs> I-, I also haven't read that book in probably eight or nine years, but I remember thinking, like, Bunny's a compelling character. I like that his <laughs> name is Bunny. I also, I think part of it for me is I had a friend in college who was a bunny, He was like a round-faced, soft, blonde boy who was very Mm -hmm. wealthy, really obnoxious about it, and was like constantly being like, well, you don't really get it, do you? And I like knew (laughs) that guy, and I was friends with that guy. And so I was like, well, I wouldn't kill him, because he's my friend. So I obviously wouldn't kill Bunny, because I I have a bunny. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember that kid's name now, but his face is like burned into my memory
0: i'm pretty sure i'm I'm the opposite of you i think i would burn basically every important relationship (laughs) to me if i if if i felt like you know they were going to do something horribly well
1: noted that if i ever think i'm going to do something horrible i won't tell you about it
0: anyway that's my secret history review i liked it a lot uh are you gonna read further
1: donna tart
0: uh everyone that Praises the secret history online says that the goldfinch was kind of not so exciting.
1: Well, it doesn't have a murder in it. Well, then I'm out. (laughs) I, uh, look, I like secret history. It is the dark academia book, right? It's like the one. And the goldfinch is different, but I like the goldfinch a lot. And I think it's very rich and interesting. well maybe i'll check it out as you know i went insane over that movie which is not good but also i love it so i don't know i (laughs) I mean i could imagine
0: listening to it you know the
1: goldfinch is about like the pain of stagnation the difficulty of moving on like the value of art and beauty in a life that is ugly it's good it's also Mm. about being like um so repressed gay that it like ruins your life wow yeah it's great really fun (laughs) good book really good book
0: all right, Hannah, what you got next?
1: Mm-hmm. Motel of the Mysteries. Um, which my dad gave to me as a... What what he described as like a fun intellectual exercise to look at how we, you know, like the values of our modern day life. Um, the premise of Motel of the Mysteries is that the year is four hundred four thousand twenty-two 4,022 or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's super future. The USA like, a thousand years ago was, like, buried in (laughs) trash, essentially. There was a mail error, and every flyer and advertisement and paper thing that you could get in the mail (laughs) arrived at once and buried our civilization completely, and it was gone, (laughs) Um, which is funny. Um, And then in 4022, uh, an archaeologist stumbles upon the Motel of the Mysteries, which he interprets as like a mass burial site a la a tomb, right? A pyramid okay. or something like that. And so what this book does is it gives you like a little description of like, you know, upon finding, let me see if I can find like a good example. So like basically there's a, it's a motel, right? So like there's, they find like a guy who's like dead on a bed watching TV, right? Uh-huh. And the archaeologist is like, well, obviously, this is a honorable burial chamber, wherein the corpse <laughs> faces the, like, sacred portal that represents the journey to the afterlife, right? And then, like, oh, we found an interior room, which is the bathroom, which has a lady in the tub, right? Um. Right. And he's like, well, this is clearly like a sarcophagus, essentially. And they interpret the toilet as like a shrine wherein chants were produced to like help, whatever. And so it sure. has that sort of like, it's very like on the nose, very cute, about like what, the way in which archaeologists are like, I guess it's religious. I don't know what it is, so it must be religious, <laughs> which is funny.
0: Are um, the are the people happening upon this place human?
1: Yes, yes. They They not only are human, but... Uh, apparently Europe has reverted to like it's 1914 sort of.
0: <laughs> um, Hannah's holding up an illustration of a man that looks quite old-timey. Yeah, he has like
1: little glasses and a little mustache and a bow tie. And the joke is that this archaeologist's name is Howard Carson. Right? Okay. And the motel is called like the Tutankhamun, Tutankhamon. so it's really it's partially a joke about like archaeology at large and our society but mostly it's a joke about how howard carter who discovered Tutankhamun's tomb was an absolute fucking idiot (laughs) and a bad archaeologist which is true um howard uh, so
0: because this this guy who's Mm -hmm. in the book is making the same mistakes how are they roasting a guy in the past via a story in the future
1: yeah uh he has almost the same name and he's doing the same sorts of things so like okay. howard carter sort of historic n- nota- notably right just like busted into this tomb and was like yo i guess this is important huh and everyone was like where's your <laughs> evidence and he was like i don't know i made it up don't you think um and he like did not follow like good protocol that we would call now he like took a ton of stuff out and he just like made a celebrity of himself um, also, at the end of this story, the archaeologist dies mysteriously, and they're like, "Ooh, it's a cursed hotel, right?" Which is the the curse of Tutankhamen's tomb. So it's like a funny little gag, um, that I think I got different things out of than my dad wanted me to get out of. Mm-hmm. But I know a little too much about Howard Carter that, like, all I could think about was like, "Yeah, that guy was fucking dumb." <laughs> but it's funny. It's very well illustrated. It has like really pretty pen and ink drawings. And the book is structured as, like, there's, like, um like a narrative element about how the excavation was done. And then there's basically, like, an exhibition catalog of the treasures where it'll say, like, hmm. well, here is the the internal component exclosure, which is an ice bucket. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has, like, a little description of what they think it is and that <laughs> sort of stuff. And then my favorite part is that the- they're still
0: using English, then. If yeah. They know- so
1: there's, like, a... There's, like, a sort of, like, intellectual, like, leap, or, like, you have to s- turn off a switch, where, like, Europe uh-huh. remained. So stuff like toilets, you're like, well, they still had toilets in Europe, so you would know, like, that, that right. piece of oral history point, is, would have carried a it is a comedy, forward. and you must yield to it. Exactly. So there's some of that where you just have to be like, yeah, they still speak English, and, like, England still exists, and the, the British Museum is there and is is hosting these things. But at the end, there's a section of souvenirs and quality reproductions, Of what they sell in the shop at the exhibition, which I think is very funny, of little things. It's like, these are bookends that are, like, they find the, you know how in hotels they'll fold your toilet paper into a triangle? Yes. Right, the little tip into a point? They're like, ah, the sacred point. And so they have little (laughs) bookends that are like reproductions of the sacred point, which is really funny.
0: Oh, that's funny. Yeah,
1: so it's it's quite funny or like there's a a little like tea set that is shaped like the sacred urn, so like they're like little, okay. little toilet bowls, uh-huh. <laughs> which is very funny. You know, so it's a it's a cute little book. It I don't know, literally took me 45 minutes to read and it, it's funny. It was good. I'm glad to have it.
0: That's I mean that the, that <clears throat> is an amazing review that that looks fun in a way I would enjoy. I will probably order that book.
1: Yeah, if yeah, I would recommend it.
0: There was a we I, we went to brunch with some people recently, and they were talking about um, a book I haven't read the the book from a few years ago. The, what was it? Um, was it called w- Welcome to the Goon Squad? Something with mm, Goon that Squad. That sounds the familiar. Title. And the, something that they were saying was they were like it got a lot of praise because there's a chapter that's a PowerPoint, <laughs> and it, people were really crazy about how that sort of sure. like. Broke format and whatnot, and I I had to break in and be like, you know, that is just standard novelization
1: stuff. <laughs> now there's pictures in the middle.
0: Um, no, but not even now there's pictures. Like that's on par with like, you know, the uh, I'm going to reference a bunch of books we haven't covered yet. Yeah. But like the clueless books, like having a dictionary in the back, and mm-hmm. like and the Charlie's Angel book having like you know the files on the girls.
1: Yeah. That's true. There is uh, any time like a serious piece of like contemporary literature breaks form, people lose their fucking minds. Like you've read yeah. House of Cards, not House of no. Cards, House of Z, Leaves of Grass,
0: House of Leaves. You are going all over House the place. House of Leaves. <laughs> leaves of Grass.
1: Not It's not <laughs> Leaves of Grass, Leaves of obviously. Grass blew people away.
0: Instead of being in prose, it was in these little short lines. Sorry. Yeah,
1: no, I'm sorry. It took me a second. House of Leaves. Have you read House of Leaves? No. Okay, that's a book where, like, sometimes the, because of the, the, the conceit of the story, the text uh-huh. just like loses structure completely. And you're looking at pages where, like, sometimes the, the words just like waterfall, but like aren't legible or they're like totally sure. overlapping or they're like turning sideways. And people are just like, this is crazy. This is unbelievable. And I was like, it's good. <laughs> it's an interesting conceptual book. Um, yeah. Or like, there is that uh, Jonathan Safran Foyer at one point basically did like, excision writing where he took somebody else's book and he cut out everything but the words he wanted so when you open the book you'll get a page that's like a frame and like one word wow and it's very hard to read physically but an interesting experiment yeah and like people do that shit i don't know it doesn't make a good book
0: no no it does make you think people just get so used to reading the same type of thing yeah that that, that anything else is refreshing
1: <laughs> yeah yeah. Anyway, Wonderful. I would also recommend House of Leaves. It's interesting. You do have to have a physical copy and then you have to like sit with it in your lap to read it. But it's cool. It's kinda cool. I had to
0: abandon the audiobook of um, No One Else Is Talking About This, the new... Mm. God, I'm forgetting her name. But it was a, a, a book that everyone says is amazing, but I was listening to it and I was just like, this was not meant to be heard. <laughs> I just can't listen to it. This is, not, mm-hmm. this is like so freeform and postmodern. It's not I'm supposed to be seeing the page. I can tell.
1: Mm. Mm. Fascinating.
0: Hannah Blackman, you yeah. had not seen The 25th Hour.
1: No, I had not.
0: And I read the book. It was based on. When was the book was like, written? Well, I'll get to that. Okay. And then I was like, Hannah, you have to read or you have to watch the movie. So that we can discuss it, what was what was your impression of the movie, Hannah? Uh,
1: yeah, it wasn't really for me. <laughs> I think is uh-huh. my impression. I respect it. Um, I think I I generally have a hard time with Spike Lee movies, and when he does his like you know structural anomalies, you know he like does his like fine art pieces in the middle of his otherwise narrative movies. I'm always like, mm. ooh,
0: ooh, ooh. you're talking about like that. the monologues yeah. in this movie,
1: yeah don't love that stuff don't i get it i don't really need it i don't need it to be that long and he does stuff like that in a lot of his movies because he's that type of filmmaker and that's cool that's cool i just don't always respond to it (laughs) super Mm. well and i also think that 25th hour is like really i almost want to say baroque but i think it's just because you used that word earlier
0: later later (laughs) later
1: (laughs) later i've heard that word recently um but it's really, like, you know, the score is so, like, choral and, like, bombastic. And, the, the you know, the, the, the movie is treating the story of these characters as if they are, like, the great American archetypes. And we yeah. have to really put weight on them. And I was just like, ah, just tell me a good story, man. And I can do that stuff myself. I don't like being preached to by any movie. So I had a slightly hard time with it. But there character elements and story pieces that I was just, like, obsessed with. So good movie. <laughs> you know
0: it, who who are the or what are the highlights for you
1: i mean as i texted you and as in in my letterbox review the berry pepper stuff where he's a guy who you learn who is a shitbag and then you learn yes. that he lives across the street from ground zero and certainly was like getting dressed when it happened and yes. watched it from his home window and then refuses to move um <laughs> is just like the mo- the most fucked up guy you can imagine. It's just like, I think I should be dead and I would like to ruin my own life so when something awful happens to me, no one will mind. Very interesting and really happening like in the background of that movie. Like you, you kind of just have to like piece him together in ways that are fascinating. Um, you know, the Philip Seymour Hoffman plot where he's like, I want to fuck a student, but I know it's bad and I'm not going to do it. <laughs> but I really want to, but I won't is a compelling version of that story that I don't think I'd really seen before. Usually it's like, I want to fuck my student, and I will. (laughs) And then if there are repercussions, I'm sorry about the repercussions, but not sorry about fucking my student. And he's a guy who's like, morally, this is wrong. But she is hot. (laughs) (laughs) Which is fun. You know, like, they're good performances. Uh, Ed Norton, not at his best.
0: Oh, you think so? Yeah,
1: I think he's... Anytime you want me to believe that Ed Norton is like a creep or like mm. a criminal, I have kind of a hard time. He's just such a like mm. sweet little man and he has that like sort of soft voice and you put a goatee on him and I'm like, I don't buy it. <laughs> you
0: know? I do think that the the <clears throat> movie does a good job and, and, and the book, it, it spills some ink to this effect as well, where they really address that he is hot in both <laughs> pieces. Where- he
1: is Ed Orton is hot. I think the main storyline of Twenty Fifth Hour. He is not that hot. He's greasy and he looks like he's posing at being a gangster in a way that is not hot
0: to me. But yes, I I think that that's part of this character though is that mm-hmm. he's like a guy who has been able to sort of rise to his station through charisma, mm-hmm. and it's this ironic sort of curdling that he's like wait, but now I'll be hot in prison, which is bad. <laughs>
1: right, right. <laughs> I mean, in the flashback where he first meets Rosario Dawson, uh-huh. he's like unbelievably hot. He's like yeah. clean shaven, has like his hair's like a little blonder and fluffier. And I was like, yeah, I would get with that guy for the rest of my life. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then in the present, I'm like, mm, good for her that she still loves him. <laughs>
0: What about what about f- future fantasy sequence with the huge mustache?
1: <laughs> hot. <laughs> Two so thumbs hot. up from Hannah. The handlebar mustache. I was like, ooh, wow, this one shot of the handlebar is great. And then it's like three minutes of that sequence. He's like, this is my look now. And I was like, "Ooh. Mm, mm, yes, hot. He looks good. Ed Norton hot.
0: And out of all the things you just said, I'm just going to latch on to the Barry Pepper thing. I'm yeah. obsessed with this performance. <laughs> Thepa uh, is
1: good, man. He's <laughs> good really actor. good
0: and I I just really think he does an amazing job in this movie of being like acidic, unlikable. He he's he's obviously s- sort of spiraling as you say and he's like o- almost dead on his feet, but also warm, loving. <laughs> like he he's really doing a lot at once. Mm-hmm. Uh his his facial acting in this movie I find incredible.
1: The part where he says to Ed Norton like you get out of prison and we'll open a bar like we're Irish guys why do we why of course we open a bar is like he spent so much of the movie convincing himself that he'll never see Ed Norton again and he doesn't Mm want to see him again and that relationship is so over but then when it really comes down to it he loves him too much and he wants him to be happy and he like can't help it but to say like there's a future for us.
0: This time (sighs) rewatching it there was a line in the book that really activated the like it really made me reevaluate the Barry Pepper character in the book when mm. he's doing the we'll open a bar we'll have green beer on St. Paddy's Day that whole thing yeah uh Ed Norton's like what are you talking about like I'll be gone for seven years like you're not going to be there Jacob's not going to be there uh Naturell's not going to be there and and Barry Pepper uh Frank he's like did I mention Naturell or Jacob <laughs> they will be gone I will be there oh yeah it, it really made me reevaluate the movie and like how he I think he means it all. I think when they're in his apartment, he's talking to Philip Seymour Hoffman and he's like, M- Monty goes away tomorrow. He's gone. You're never going to see him again. I think he means you're never going <laughs> to see him again.
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, there's like so much interesting stuff in that movie about like w- when your childhood friends. And you've remained living in the same place. So you have kept in touch, but like mm-hmm. your lives are so different. Like, what would it take for you to not be friends with that person anymore? And one of you going to prison is about it. Like I think that's it for most of those guys. And so when yeah. Barry Pepper says like, no, I will be there, um, it's kind of shocking and kind of exciting. And I think he does mean it. And the oh, fact definitely. that he's then willing to like beat the shit out of Ed Norton so that he isn't immediately abused in prison is love.
0: It's very, it's so And it's loving. something
1: that, like, Jake can't do. I also, like, love Philip Seymour Hoffman in that movie. There's a very funny part where someone says, like, you're a Jewish guy from the Upper West Side. And I was like, Ugh! which is nobody's fault. <laughs> but um, it's really hard to look at Philip Seymour Hoffman and be like, mm, a Jew. <laughs> yeah,
0: it, there's there's a lot of weird dialogue in the movie regarding uh, who they are. Like, <laughs> anytime they reference age, Ed Norton's like, I'm going into prison for seven years. I'll be... I'll be 35 when I get out, or something like that. I was like, what?
1: Yeah, there is a part where Felicity Hoffman's like, you know, she's, she's 17 now, but in five years, she'll be 21 and, and I'll be 36. And I was like, you're 31? He is,
0: in this book, he is canonically 26.
1: <laughs> oh <my
0: God. laughs> Twist. Okay. Different. Let me tackle a few things movie. from the book, which I, I really enjoyed this book. Here's the crazy curveball. This was 100% written before 9/11. Mhm. Just nothing to do with 9/11, which makes you So what's going on with Barry Pepper? Well, what is the book about? Cuz when I'm I when I first watched this movie like 10 years ago and I'm immediately obsessed with it, I am just impressed with how like every plot line to me is this abstraction of what is it to go through Either a great trauma, like 9-11, mm-hmm. or what is it like to just acknowledge that a change has occurred and everything is different forever, be it good or bad? Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, whoever wrote this book took the events of 9-11 and was like, how do I show three people going through things that will change them forever?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: As events written to be on their own, very confusing.
1: Sure. Sure. Uh, I, I do want to hear more about how the book like justifies any of this shit. But I also feel like the, especially with the end of the movie, that, that concept of this life almost never happened. Mm-hmm. You'll be amazed how much it almost never happened. Right. Right. Feels so much about like, a- and I feel like the movie takes place like maybe in like, like five months after 9-11. Like it's so Definitely. recent. It's so raw. And these people like don't really talk about it. Um, It feels so much that the movie is also about, like, any one of us could have died and could die at any point. And, like, what are our lives in light of a thing that we never thought that way before, and now we all culturally have to. Um, Right. And specifically us as New Yorkers. And, like, as a New Yorker, can you really thrive in the Midwest? Do you really want that? Would you really choose to be safe in the Midwest when you could be in danger in New York with your family and friends? (laughs)
0: Oh, you're not just referring to the end of the movie. You're talking about, like, the idea that you you could just leave the city.
1: Yeah, I think all these things are hand in hand. At both, I mean, explicit at the end of the movie, where I think you and I agree that Ed Norton's like, no, obviously I'm just going to go to prison.
0: I don't think that it's up for interpretation if I'm being honest. Like I'm all for people being like I read it this way, I read it this way with most movies.
1: I don't know if this is a movie where anybody has ever said anything other than of course he's going to prison.
0: No, they but, people, oh, yeah? people say. Okay. Okay. People people go like, you know, is it for sure that they made the decision to go to prison? But it is kind of for sure. Because it feels very
1: for sure to me.
0: Well, it's also just like factually for sure. Because Brian Cox at the end is like, give me the word, I'll take a left and get on the bridge. And he's like, hmm, let me think about that for a second. And when they cut back, they have driven past the bridge. Yes. That's it. I also
1: think if you were going to say, and then they do this runaway plan, you wouldn't cut back at all. You would end with that, like, really goofy, everybody's old thing.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the when he's (laughs) old thing. I actually, I defend the when when he's old goofiness. I think it's great. That the the sequence at the end, which I I don't think I, I mean I'll have to go in like an hour, so I don't think I'll have time to do this rant. Mm-hmm. But I truly think La La Land ripped off this specific movie.
1: <laughs> okay, their, yeah. with their ending, Damien Chazelle is a ripper offer.
0: So which it, And it just feels so cheap to be like, okay, here's this extremely overwrought uh, movie, The Twenty Fifth Hour, with this incredible whether you like it or not, it's just like, he this huge ending and to be like, and now let me do it again. But for, will they keep dating? It's yeah, just, no, it's f-
1: not to go off on Damien Chazelle, but he fucking sucks. And he watches <laughs> things and is like, I get what's good about that, but he doesn't. And so when he like redoes it for himself, it sucks. Cause he has like such a shallow understanding of like, what makes that sequence great? What makes singing in the rain? Great. Like, Period. No real depth of concept from him. Period. Right. I'm with you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we <laughs> were both on a little bit of a babble on disappointment at the moment. No
1: disappointment. I knew I would hate it. I did. He delivered exactly <laughs> what I thought he would. Bullshit.
0: I could not believe when that movie was ending. I was like, this ca- this can't end like this. You I can't genuinely, do this.
1: When that couple in front of me walked out when that montage started, I was like, I wish I was you. This is certainly the end of the movie, and I wish I could just—I fucking hate this. I got—I hate this. Like it was so. Oh my god. All right, let me hit some
0: highlights yeah, yeah, here. yeah, please, please, please. Ba 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 ba. So the book starts. I—I've I, discovered doing this podcast that I like to just read the opening passage of books. It kind of sets the tone, you know. Oh, yeah. The book starts with the whole thing with rescuing Doyle the dog, mm. <clears throat> and says. They found the black dog sleeping on the shoulder of the West Side Highway, dreaming dog dreams. A crippled cast off, left ear chewed to mints. hide scored with dozens of cigarette burns. A fighting dog abandoned to the mercy of river rats. Traffic rumbled past. Vans with padlocked rear doors. White limousines with tinted glass and New Jersey plates. Yellow cabs, blue police cruisers. Nothing special. Reminds me a lot of heat too. There's Mm. a lot of like Writing in this book that's like, and this was there, and this too was there.
1: I was amazed that the dog remained through the rest of the movie and story. Um, thought it was just going to be like one of those indicative prologue scenes of like, this is a good guy, actually. Love the dog.
0: Love the dog. Love the dog. Love the dog. Love and I, I mean, I, I eat up the some of the... I I mean, I, I love this movie. So most of the things that are like definitely cheesy, I just I just take hook, line, and sinker. I love that... He has that line at the end of the movie where he's like saving that dog's the best thing I ever did. Like every every day that dog has is because of me. Yeah. It's like it's so on the nose to be like I am losing a part of my life, but I have given something uh approximately about hmm 7 years.
1: There is a lot in that movie that is on the nose. Is the book that on the nose?
0: Uh I would say so and also mm. The things that you have singled out as, like, Spike Lee showmanship are just from the book. Oh, okay. There just is a page of, of and fuck them, and fuck them, and fuck them.
1: Okay, I, yeah, cool, all right, nice. I mean, the way that it's filmed is so Spike Lee to me, because <laughs> he, like, loves the faces of New Yorkers. Cool, that's cool to know, though. <laughs> So was this book written in, like, 1997, or, like, what are we talking about? No,
0: it was written, like, right before 9-11. Oh, damn, so So it it came out in, like, the year
1: 2001, like, in February? It comes out
0: in 2002. Look, I can't find confirmation anywhere that it actually was written, like, fully before 9-11. No one's talking about 9-11 in the book in any way.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And it seems to have come out in, like, you know either like august or october like either right before or right after it's hard to imagine that the entire book is just spat out like overnight
1: so what's the deal with barry pepper
0: (laughs) well i'm on that page right now
1: okay please i need to understand what's happening with that character in that book
0: it says nose pressed to the plate glass windows slattery wonders how close to the hudson a good jump would get him standing on the 32nd floor Assume each floor has a 10-foot ceiling, a 2-foot interstice between that ceiling and the floor above, 320 plus 64 equals 384, a 384-foot fall. And how far from the building to the river? 300 feet. So a 384-foot vertical, 300-foot horizontal for a hypotenuse of... He frowns. Wait a second. A jump out this window will not be a slide down the hypotenuse. Gravity will suck him earthward as soon as he loses momentum. So a leap of 300 feet.
1: That's so 9-11-y.
0: Super 9-11-y, but also it's just this man's suicidal. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Just right off the bat. uh, I also (laughs) related to him as a math tutor. I like that he's like (laughs) sitting there like doing calculus. (laughs) Like being like, wait, actually a move down this wouldn't be like the derivative. It would just be a drop. Okay, got (laughs) to start over.
1: Um, In the movie, his name is spelled slaughter e is that accurate to the book or is it slattery no, like slattery,
0: slattery and there's a lot of name changing because guess oh. what guess what Naturell's last name is in the book
1: I don't want to I don't want to guess
0: Rosario Really <laughs> Yes
1: Funny <laughs>
0: <laughs> So they had to change it
1: <laughs> They didn't have to but it is funny to <laughs> think we're like well we should <laughs> <laughs> Wow So the guy who wrote the book wrote the screenplay right Why do you think he really felt he had to change these
0: names i have no idea hmm. uh, i mean i think i figured out the rosario dawson right one. sure but uh I, I have no idea he also uh the the uh, whatever the, the crime boss's name is which i, I want to say is it's like a russian name right but mm-hmm. in the book it's just uncle blue oh wow you okay. know i guess maybe
1: he wrote the book and then a year later he was like i have some notes on myself rushed to publication want to make some edits.
0: (laughs) I wrote this on September 12th in a hurry. Okay, here's another good Slattery thing. Uh, Slattery's eyes are undercast with black crescents. He wakes each morning at 5.30 and rides 10 imaginary miles on his stationary bike. An hour later, he arrives at the office, seats himself before his array of electronics, and scans his seven screens for information, for clues he might have missed the previous afternoon. He... Oh, here we go. The brown curls have begun their slow retreat from his forehead. An ex-wrestler, Slattery's nose has been broken four times, his ears cauliflowered, his front teeth chipped from an accidental headbutt sophomore year of college. His neck remains massive from grappling days, out of proportion to the rest of his body. He hasn't been able to fasten the top button of his dress shirts since high school.
1: This is not Barry Pepper. This is like Michael no, not, no. Fascinating.
0: <laughs> Not at all. He's just like an absolute meathead in this book.
1: I mean, I love that Barry Pepper is like, like sharp as a knife, you know?
0: Here's the last Slattery thing. It okay. says, uh, Slattery has a hard time letting things go. At night, he often dreams of avenging slanders, real or imagined. Mm. Wakes with a feeling of satisfaction, of justice, only to realize that the vindication is mere fantasy, the wrong still unrighted. All the men he has not fought, but should have. One time when when Slattery was drinking at closing hour, a bouncer said, Time's up. Out. Let me just finish my beer. The bouncer knocked the glass from Slattery's hands. You're finished. Two other large men came over, flanking their co-worker. What the fuck was that for? asked Slattery. Do something, said the bouncer. Slattery did nothing. He left the bar and walked home, and has been cursing himself ever since. Uh, And then it says, that was 10 years ago.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a clear picture of this guy.
0: Full of rage.
1: Yeah, but like impotent to do anything about it because he's actually scared to die.
0: I think that (laughs) it must be that the reason this character exists without the 9-11 stuff is that we're in a time when people are like, you know, like American Beauty and Fight Club are resonating with people. There's a lot of this idea of like oh to be in an office and to have a job that's a prison
1: yeah the plateau of american success
0: yeah which just seems so small and silly of a gripe now that we're like 20 yeah, years 9-11 on.
1: world that's that's well how no it
0: not even just a post 9-11 world in a political sense but but in a <laughs> in a world where like i have an office job and another job and it's mm. a little hard to make ends meet It feels so silly that 20 years ago, white men were being like, ugh, I have this really cushy job. Too much money. I don't even know what to do with it, but am I really happy?
1: What's my soul doing? Get a hobby. (laughs) Yeah, you know, in hindsight, I'd love to have a cushy job that I could sit in forever. Or like this character and this he's like super doing great he's like a wall street guy who's crushing it yeah no
0: he's totally especially (laughs) you take away the 9-11 thing it's like what's your problem
1: yeah but the 9-11 thing for me in the movie contextualizes him so clearly um as someone who should get therapy
0: i would love to hear like what discussion happened here because it's such a genius move to take this book and be like 9-11 just happened what if this book just a slam dunk for some some studio executive who came up with that idea
1: (laughs) what's what's the philip seymour hoffman character like in the
0: book let's see on 49 and 50 they talk about what a good pedestrian he is
1: he's like an uptight correct citizen
0: jacob is one of the greatest pedestrians in new york's history He angles through the crowd, slipping the jabs and hooks of oncoming walkers, ducking below tree branches, tiptoeing along the curb's edge, dodging the scattered piles of dog shit, waiting for an opening, and then darting into the clear. Like all good citizens of the city, Jacob has learned to avert his eyes from the freaks of the street, the panhandling amputees, the palsied church-step dwellers, the deranged sideshows picking through the garbage. Everyone here is so nasty on the inside. <laughs> uh, he threads his way through the rushing mob outside the second 72nd Street subway station. Past the turnstile, down the stairs, he finds the emptiest stretch of platform. When the train arrives, he burrows into the scum of the packed car, snatches a strap, and holds on as the train accelerates. Uh, it's He's just like trying to stay out of the way of life, essentially. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. They explain to us why these three guys are friends, which made me think of the John Mulaney bit about Back to the Future, where it's like, you know, you do kind of watch this movie, and you're like, why were they hanging out with Jacob? (laughs) Like, Why was that ever the case?
1: Yeah, two of these guys seem like on the same page, and then Jacob's like a third mystery.
0: (laughs) Totally, totally. Doesn't seem
1: like cool enough or rough enough to hang out with any of these guys.
0: Uh, It says, Jacob remembers the first day of ninth grade, walking through the school gates uneager to spend another year with the tanned boys who milled in the courtyard wearing loosely knotted ties and boat shoes. When he met Frank and Monty, and Monty, he thrilled at their Brooklyn accents, their carefully combed hair the opposite of traditional prep school dishevelment. Both of them had been in scores of fistfights, which mesmerized Jacob, who had been at exactly zero. But they were out of their element here, Nervous around the diffident poise of the old-timers, intimidated by the casual displays of wealth. They immediately fastened upon Jacob as a sympathetic figure who knew his way around. So, they like him because he has the lay of the land. He likes them because he's boring and he hates it, which is just classic Jacob. That character,
1: like, in a nutshell, yeah. Wants something exciting to happen, but the only exciting thing that could happen is he makes out with a student. (laughs) And he like hates himself for pursuing that.
0: Yeah. And the 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 thing about the making out with the student is I do like how much it's framed as like an inevitability, which is to say like, he really seems like a guy at the beginning of the movie who who has decided to do something wrong in the sense that he is so fixated on it, right? Like he's coming back to it again and again.
1: Yeah, he definitely feels like he wants to do it. He doesn't want to want to do it, but he has to just, like, convince himself that he can do it. Yeah. And he spends the whole movie being like, I know it's so wrong, but do you guys think, would it be okay? Like, what if it was, what do you, what do you, what if I thought it was okay? (laughs) What do you think? And I understand that. That's, like, a very reasonable thing to be like, I know it's stupid. I know it's wrong. I want to do it so bad. You just have to, like, talk yourself into the place where it becomes okay. Right. Um, and then he does it and is immediately like, wow, that was the best thing that's ever happened to me. And it can never happen again. <laughs> <laughs> like that lingering shot on Philip Seymour Hoffman's face as he comes out of that bathroom. And it has that like spiky floater thing. i yes. like, this is such a beautiful glass face. Like he is not moving. He is not feeling anything except for this one thing. <laughs> Great. I
0: love the Spike Lee conveyor belt every time. <laughs> it, it the one in Inside Man with Denzel is so cool. I like it's when he does them
1: because it's a real like hey like thing. At this point, he does it like three or four times in the bar sequence. In this movie, yeah, mm. he does it. Ed Norton coming into the bar from behind his head. Oh yes. one of those. Livs Seymour Hoffman has one. I feel like there's one. I feel like Barry Pepper gets one, but it's subtler. Like it's okay. not the, the straightforward boxy one that is right. like the trademark. He's doing like variations for each of them. But I think each of them get one in the bar sequence. And Anna Paquin gets like something that you're like, is this one? And then it isn't.
0: What is your read is on the Anna Paquin reaction to the kiss?
1: I mean, I feel like she's not into him, right? Right. She thinks that she can do this gross thing to blackmail him into giving her a better grade. And she thought she could do it just by flirting with him, and then she's like, "I guess maybe more is needed here." So I don't, I don't know, I don't know. What do you think?
0: Well, I, the the book is very explicit that like he kisses her, and and then he's like, "Oh, I'm I realize I'm not being kissed back." Like she's actually really not into it, mm-hmm. and it actually kind of makes it seem more predatory than I feel like the movie did. Mm-hmm. In the movie, something I I like about it is like if you're going with the 9-11 theme of everyone is approaching these sort of, uh, what's the plural of precipice, precipice that they
1: can never come back
0: from Mm -hmm. it feels like two characters who are doing that, like in that one plot, you have Philip Seymour Hoffman being like, I really don't want to follow this impulse that I know I will and Anna Paquin being like I really want to be perceived as adult, I really want to do a thing that's transgressive and mm. both of them in a single moment hit the point of oh no I've I've crossed over and I, I'm freaked out by that
1: it is a really good moment I think I was more focused on Philip Seymour Hoffman who like breaks away from that and then is like goodbye and like just leaves um and I was yeah. like very proud of him I
0: guess there's a uh a, a subplot in the book that I understand why they cut it uh <laughs> where Philip Seymour Hoffman goes out to drinks uh, after the like school scene. He goes out to drinks with a former professor of his, which is who's now in the English department with him. And the guy is basically it, it's this long passage, so, like has no place in a film, where the guy <laughs> is just ranting about how he had the most genius idea for the title of a book, not even the book, just the title of a book. Um, which I think is a, a Coney Island of the Mind. And... Not that good. Uh, what's that? It's not that good. I wouldn't pick that Not that out. good. And and it's about how he... Uh, it was stolen from him by someone more famous. And he's, like, lived his life a being bitter about it. And Philip Sewerhoff and char- his character is like, I know that that's not true. Because <laughs> I, I actually looked up the publication <laughs> date. And that guy beat him to the idea. So... <laughs> Um, it's sort of an interesting wrinkle of, like, he's looking at a person who has decided to live his life in relation to an anxiety, mm-hmm. and he's going, like, oh, maybe instead I'll do the thing. Should I just do the thing? And then that's not good either.
1: Yeah. I mean, post 9-11, you do feel like, I, I have to try, right? Wh- what? Why not? You only live once, right? Right. right. Um, let me kiss a teenage girl. And then, yeah, it's not good. You don't want to do it. It's good to know. You know now.
0: He calls this professor after the kiss because he's freaking out. And he's like, he's like, uh, he's like, George, I did it. I, I don't know what to do. I did it. And the guy goes, oh, Jacob, I've been, and I've been waiting for this for so long. This is so good for you. And he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, you've been with a man.
1: <laughs> 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 That's really uh, funny. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's really good stuff. There's a runner in the book about how uh, Ed Norton, because he has that photo where he's in the plastic fireman's hat. Mm-hmm. He, the, there's a thing where he's just constantly imagining if he had done that with his life instead, which sure. is, I guess, a, the type of fantasy you would engage in. He's sort of imagining that other road.
1: Yeah, when your life has hit the worst wall, you do start thinking, could I have made different choices? What if I
0: had? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he gets to the point too, where he's like, "How can they send me to jail? How like what? Well, that's so irresponsible! Like I could be saving people from fires in those seven years." <laughs> like, he really gets a little delusional so about funny. it. So uh, funny. I think the only other thing I wanted to hit was uh, the scene where Frank and Naturell fight mm-hmm. in the book ends with the line let me find it uh do 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 do
1: i really like the part of the movie where she's like two seconds ago i was talking to my friend frank now i'm talking to somebody i don't fucking know
0: <laughs> yes and it's it although me watching that i'm like you really are used to this guy being chill
1: <laughs> he also seems like a guy who's like racist and in, in ways that like the movie doesn't engage with you know like definitely part of what he doesn't like about her i think is that she's puerto rican
0: yeah, he uses a slur yeah. in that scene. I mean, so, yes,
1: that felt like um, part of his self-destruction in that moment of like time to whip out the slur so that she hates me so much I never see her again.
0: Really interesting that you said that. So oh, yeah? that is what the book is essentially putting oh. forth, but that's at odds with my reading of the situation. Oh. So the book, uh, they're, they're in the middle of the fight. Um, at the end, she says... Uh, And Frank, if you remember this conversation tomorrow, if you get the urge to send me flowers or call up and apologize, don't. Slattery watches her walk away. He watches the dreadlocked men intent upon their impossible chess game. Just something else happening. Mm -hmm. He watches his hands sitting open on his lap, meaty-palmed, crook-fingered. This way is better, he tells himself. This way there won't be any temptations. Not my read! That he's, like, faking the fight?
1: I guess, well, that last line in the book sounds like he's like if i have to see her when she isn't dating monty i will want to fuck her and it will be a huge problem right, right? which is not my read on that relationship from watching the movie <laughs> at all no um and is a weird sort of like wrench to throw into it right at the end
0: <laughs> yeah i i always saw that scene which i i really love as as conflation of like objectification and anger in this Mm -hmm. way that he's living his life in an angry way where like like a lot of americans we like grew up watching action movies where you know there's like people getting you know blown away and whatnot and like two seconds later there's like boobs on screen i feel like he's like this classic example of american like his 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 sexuality is sort of hateful in this ugly way and uh i feel like in that scene it it just comes out as like pure hate and it's like, yes, he's attracted to Natural, and I'm sure that she is a beautiful woman. But to me, it's like that scene is mm-hmm. him, is it, almost being like the reason he was lusting so much was because he had actual resentment about these issues. And he was channeling it into this pretty ugly thing, which was like processing it as lust or as desire. Mm-hmm.
1: I guess I read it more as like, because that, that's, that's like seconds after he has that conversation with Monty about we'll open a bar, we'll yeah. be together, whatever, essentially. And then Monty goes to talk to the Russians and Frank goes to get a drink. I guess I read that more as like natural. It's like, well, obviously I am Monty's person and I'll be there for him. Right. And that's our relationship because we're in love. And Frank yeah. is like, fuck you. You are not his person. I am his person. And yeah. I hate you for being a beautiful woman. And I hate you for having that relationship with him. And I don't want to have to have a relationship with you. I want to have a, the, whatever I have with Monty separate from you. And right. you being in the picture at all makes me insane.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: and the idea that like over the course of seven years, because they both intend to wait around for Monty, they would have to be in each other's lives in some capacity. Right. Which is the opposite of what he wants so he's like time to get her away from me and break that friendship that she sees as a friendship
0: well you obviously agree with the author okay so
1: (laughs) but not like a sexual way in like a triangle way no i get what you mean yeah i get what you mean it's like strategic as opposed to yeah yeah as opposed to like he actually i mean he clearly actually has problems with her but
0: the 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 Monty natural relationship in the book is a lot uglier in a certain sense yeah. and every it's loving but like he does have sex with a prostitute in the book mm. not super chill at the party she's there <laughs> um oh, that's and cool. it, it, uh he it, I mean obviously I meant sex worker sorry about that and um he uh also in the in his fantasy sequence he imagines that he marries a different woman <laughs> Oh, which is realistic. Uh, but here's uh, th- this. Uh, mm-hmm. I think this is probably like my final thought on the on the movie and book. But like okay. the the thing that I like about the final sequence. I'm not so hot on the uh, "fuck you, fuck you" sequence halfway through the movie. But it's twin of the fantasy sequence. I like a lot because as it keeps going, it becomes more unrealistic. Yes. Like at first. It's like we could just keep driving. What if we did that? What if we went to this town? And then eventually it's like, and then natural would come. It starts to feel sort of fake. And you
1: have like five kids and
0: And you have like five kids and as you said, I, I think a, I think a strength of the sequence, the the old age makeup looks bad. The the you know, it looks really fake and it starts to feel tinny and unreal before mm-hmm. the reveal that yes, it's not happening at all.
1: There's also, from a filmic perspective, like most of the flashbacks or fantasy sequences have like a heavier grit to them and like a higher saturation, and you can tell when you're not, right? And that sequence at the end sort of like bandies back and forth between some of them look like what we're used to seeing as the present reality, and some of it looks grainy and fake and crazy. And I think that's very smart and very cool to be like, eventually it becomes like improbable and impossible. And, like, the last bit where they're all old and wearing white is, like, foggy. <laughs> it's, like, hard to see, almost.
0: Yeah. It rules. Anyway, thanks for watching the 25th yeah, hour. Yeah, man,
1: I, I enjoyed the experience, even if I don't think I'll ever, like, choose to watch it again. You know, I, I'm glad yeah. to have seen it. And I it has given me many things I'm going to keep in my head, stirring around for a while, you know.
0: What about John Quincy oh, Adams, Quincy.
1: John Quincy! Though? John Quincy! The smartest man of his age. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. So I recently rewatched the HBO John Adams. I've watched like, the first two. Yeah. It's good, good, right? Yeah. Really good. I think it is, like, the best presentation of the Founding Fathers, like, in a semi-fictional anything. Like, it's great. Sure. It's very humane and down-to-earth about, like, who these people were and how they viewed themselves. And also, I think it's, in some ways, hilariously funny. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, there was great... There's just, like, huge sections where, like... John Adams, right, is ambassador to France for a while, basically. Okay. And he just, like, doesn't see his children for, like, ten years. And then comes back and is, like... Even
0: in the first couple episodes, uh, I was like, they're really making him out to be a bad father.
1: Um, this is why I decided to pick up the John Quincy book. Sure. Because the relationship that the, par- the Adamses as parents had with their children, and especially with John Quincy, I was like, no way... You look at that from your as a child perspective and go like, that was good. They raised me appropriately. Um, And I wanted to get a little bit more insight on how he experienced being raised that way. Um, Then there's another, you know, 50 years of his life, which are also extremely interesting. Um, But it feels so much that like John and Abigail had unbelievably high expectations for him Mm -hmm. that they forced upon him. There's a very interesting part in this book where he, as a, you know, at 12 is sent to Russia to, like, be an assistant to an ambassador, basically, without his parents. Mm. He's just, like, a child um, doing that. And on his way back, as, like, a 16-year-old, kind of, like, it sounds like he fucks his way through Sweden a little bit. (laughs) Like, (laughs) definitely a sexier guy than I ever thought John Quincy Adams was. Um, Right. But, like... He, like is having a good time in europe and returns to paris and starts writing poetry and is like god i would love to just be a poet maybe i should just be a poet and like <laughs> you know he's expressing some of this to his parents and his mm-hmm. dad is like john quincy you are going to attend harvard university and become <laughs> a lawyer and a public servant That is what you are going to do. And John Quincy is like, yeah, you're you're right. You're right. You're right. But he like continues to write poetry in his life and he writes like sexy poetry to his wife when they're separated after they get married. Um and all of that's like good color for a guy who my impression of John Quincy had always been that he was like the lamest man in America because he was so intellectual, so educated. Um, had like principles of a kind that like no one else of his era carried um, Mm -hmm. in ways that are like fascinating (laughs) and remarkable um that he's kind of stodgy i do think it's very funny in the hbo miniseries there's a part where like the children are like mommy mommy let's all have fun john quincy is so boring (laughs) like (laughs) yeah like even his siblings are like he's kind of lame you know but it's because he has that, like, eldest child thing. He's, like, carrying the expectations of his parents and the family name and so much. Um, and especially as later in life, after, like, his one brother dies of alcoholism, essentially, his other brother also falls into alcoholism and becomes, like, loses his business, has a really hard time of it. And John Quincy is like, I just have to keep it together. Like, somebody has right. to keep this family in shape in any capacity and like keep the farm and make sure that we all don't um die and fall into (laughs) absolute disgrace that's a lot of pressure to carry he also like had multiple children die (laughs) on him like his wife Mm. miscarried a ton and they had a hard time of it um you know had a miserable four years as president just like the worst possible time being president
0: I don't know anything about this. So what, oh, my what gosh. Was-
1: oh, boy. So the <laughs> overview is, right, he spends his entire youth in Europe, basically, in Paris, <laughs> in St. Petersburg, um, at a very early age, is given, like, the ambassadorship to the Netherlands, basically. So he's, like, he's like the hub of information for Europe during, like, a really contentious period, where America is keeping neutral out of the british french conflict that's continuous but they're like we need to know what's going on because like technically france is our allies but we're isolationist right now and we can't lose mm-hmm. trade with britain and it's all very complicated so john quincy is like carrying diplomatic weight at like age 21 mm. right um he also hates being a lawyer Every time he is forced to go back to Massachusetts and, like, open a law practice, he hates it and he fails. Like, he's so bad at it. (laughs) He really likes being a diplomat and a public servant. At one point, he is offered a seat on the Supreme Court and he turns it down because he's having Mm. too much fun partying in Russia. (laughs) (laughs) He, yeah, marries this woman, Louisa, who is an elder daughter. She's, like, 25 when they get married, which is old, and everyone expects him to go for the younger daughter and he doesn't. Mm -hmm. Um they truly genuinely love each other so much which is great after you know he ends up in saint petersburg as like ambassador to russia becomes really good friends with the russian czar they take long walks together <laughs> it's delightful the russian czar is also like hardcore trying to hit on john quincy's sister-in-law in ways that is a problem <laughs> um there's some like other scandalous adventure happening eventually he is recalled To America, he spent some time, I think, as ambassador to Britain, too, but is recalled to America, is doing stuff at home, is elected to the Congress and serves in Congress for a minute, Mm. Um, finds it very frustrating. As Um, you would. Yes. He kind of famously, I don't know if you have read Profiles in Courage at all, John Kennedy's book, but the first Profile in Courage is John Quincy Adams for... When the Louisiana Purchase is being negotiated, his entire party is like, ''Fuck that noise. We're not doing it. It's unconstitutional.'' And John right. Quincy is like, ''I don't agree with that, and I don't believe in parties.'' So he like <laughs> breaks from his party so aggressively that they kick him out of office before his term is over. Wow. Yeah. Um, and they're like, ''You're not welcome here anymore. Goodbye.'' He becomes Secretary of State very successfully. And then in 1824, there's a presidential election where he and Andrew Jackson end up with like the most votes, but neither of them has enough votes to just be elected, Mm -hmm. electoral votes. So it goes to the House, and it goes to like so many rounds of votes. It's insane. right? And eventually, Henry Clay, who is the third person in that vote mess, basically steps back and throws his support behind Quincy Adams, and then is... Pronounced Secretary of State, and Andrew Jackson is like, that's a dirty deal. They did a behind-the-scenes deal. That's fucked up. That's bad politics. Shame on you both. And it taints Quincy's presidency completely. Um, it's also an election where like Andrew Jackson like wins the popular vote like you wouldn't believe, but beat the Electoral College fucks him, and so he's furious. And it's like a whole wait. Thing. So
0: so Quincy, you say taints his presidency because yeah. what if people think he's taken the wrong stance.
1: People thinks he, think he made a dirty deal after a whole career of being, like, the most morally upright politician oh, in Oh,
0: gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And they're,
1: like, for shame. And also, like, Henry Clay is, like, a real conniving guy. Like, in a really smart... Like, what a fascinating man was Henry Clay. Don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, like, had a sort of a reputation as being an ambitious politician. Uh, and so people were like, we don't like that John Quincy, like threw his boat in with that guy as opposed mm-hmm. to the great hero of the war of 1812 in all of our books mm-hmm. the man who gave us florida you know um, right, whatever so like it, it takes his presidency congress makes it extremely hard for him to get anything done for four years he hates it he <laughs> leaves the presidency it's just like worst four years of my life never want to do it again never want to do anything <laughs> like that again but ends up in the senate and stays there until he dies Wow. He dies on the Senate floor in like 1858 or something.
0: Oh my God.
1: Yeah. Just an unbelievable man. Spoke spoke like nine languages, traveled the world, was a philosopher and a thoughtful man who like read the Bible and read Greek and read like Roman philosophy every single day of his life, truly believed in education for all, like encouraged public development of high schools- and yeah. public education, just like a real cool, smart guy who kind of gets fucked by history by being a little bit lame. I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I like him. <laughs> so I your take on
0: his on 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 his failure is not that what he did was immoral, just that it was too square.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of his deal is like saying he was a, a true constitutionalist, where like he thought slavery was the most abhorrent thing in the world. Yeah. But did not think it was his place to argue against it because it was written into the Constitution. Mm. And so there are multiple times where, like, the the Missouri Compromise he's part of, right, of saying, like, mm-hmm. well, I think we need to draw lines to say, like, here's how slavery is going to be handled in the future because the Constitution doesn't say it. But you mm. can't say that there can be no slavery because the Constitution is explicit about how there can be slavery.
0: Because he's an absolutist.
1: Um, yeah and in an era where like those guys are not alive quite anymore but like he knew all of their felt all of the founding fathers personally yeah. and so yeah. the argument that people make today of like well here's what I think George Washington would want right like John yeah. Quincy was having dinners with George Washington and James Monroe and like Thomas Jefferson like all the time and genuinely <laughs> knew what they thought and meant um, yeah. and so is able to say like if we're following our constitution which was written by smart people And if we believe in the rule of constitutional law, we cannot just, like, bend it. Mm. Both in the pro or the con. Like, we can't do it to free slaves, and we can't do it to, you know, hurt minorities. Like, he was a real hardliner on that kind of thing. Which is a fascinating way to be. He also was, like, so non... He was not a party man at all. Like, he did not care about party politics, and he did not want to like, run for office ever. Mm. Like, there's a, a multiple stories of people being like, you know, now's the time to get your, like, campaign going if you want to be president. <laughs> and he's yeah. like, uh, no. If the that American people want me to, me to be president, yeah. then I'll take it. But, like, I'm not... I'm not... That's not how it's supposed to work, and I won't do that. Mm. Um, which I respect.
0: Just didn't believe in the concept of campaigning.
1: Yeah, he... he. That's, that's awesome. not the principle upon which our government was meant to be developed, you know? I like,
0: I, I, I'm, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to do it like out of arrogance. I'm going to be like, why would I campaign? I'm a household name. People will be like, that's not true.
1: <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, <laughs> that'd be a funny thing to try and do now. Just be like, I'm not campaigning, but if you want to vote for me, <laughs> I wouldn't, I'm a public servant. Like, I think Quincy was very much a public servant whose goal was in every way to serve the American public, and the American concept.
0: Hannah, I got to run, but let me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. You are in a clicky class in undergraduate (laughs) that perhaps is (laughs) is a a little codependent. Mm -hmm. This class is focused on film novelizations, and you just went on winter break and were able to read something a little different. (laughs) Yeah. Having done that, having had that experience, do you choose to re-enter the class and put the shackles back on and go back to novelizations? Yes,
1: I do. Of course I do.
0: Wonderful. Of
1: course I do. Um, Andrew Overby, you are a freshman congressman from Massachusetts in the year 1810, let's say. That's too Great. early. No, that's fine. Let's go with that. This is coming out know.
0: right after our Uncharted episode, which kind of <laughs> works, right? Mm,
1: yeah. For yeah, Quincy? Yeah, this is that right? period. Quincy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's also funny that, like, at one point, John Quincy Adams becomes, like, not mayor of the town that he's from or whatever, but, like, he has some authority over it and immediately renames it to Quincy. (laughs) (laughs) Is it Quincy, Massachusetts?
0: Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm. Wow. I didn't know that.
1: Did you not know that? Yeah, that's his birthplace, and it used to be called something else, and then he was like, no, I'm going to name it after my family. That's cool. Uh, which rocks. But anyway, you are he in Congress. And everyone's like, hey, we're all reading books for fun that we love. Do you want to join us and read books that are just like our choice? Or do you stand by your morals and your commitments and read novelizations <laughs> as asked by your constituency?
0: Uh, yeah, I'm going to read the novelizations <laughs> because I believe in the will of the American people.
1: Attaboy. boy
0: uh to our listeners before do our we leave podcast. i want to say one more thing uh, really really fast go. i also
1: over this break finished watching andor and i just oh, yeah. want to say i have a much more sophisticated concept of what that show is doing now than i did when we recorded our episode and i'm smart and i do have thoughtful things to say about it you just don't get to hear them because past hannah fucked up great end of statement
0: <laughs> great well we'll do an andor season two episode in like three years
1: and then i can fix my mistakes <laughs>
0: to our listeners uh, rate review what else do we ask them subscribe. to do patreon it exists subscribe tell yeah. people mm-hmm. uh yeah i don't have an outro thing for this it's a bonus episode yes, but i don't know. know maybe there's a game you'll have to find out <laughs> good night Okay, so, as probably discussed in the episode, I finished The Secret History, and you read the biography of John Quincy Adams? Yes, I
1: read a biography of John Quincy Adams.
0: And so I ask you, was this John Q. Adams or (laughs) Donna Tart?
1: (laughs) What a fun game. What a fun game.
0: Will it work as a concept? TBD. But yes, I agree that it's a fun idea.
1: <laughs> I like the idea that these two human beings separated in time by 200 solid years could have similar <laughs> writing styles or like events in their lives. I don't know what this game is going to be about.
0: <laughs> you, you be the judge of if this is at all challenging. <laughs> Just to be clear, the concept here is that uh, these will either be something Said by the sixth president of the United States, John Quincy Adams, or because I read the secret history, literal text from the secret history, <laughs> not quotes from from Donna Tartt.
1: Okay, okay.
0: All right, up first, Hannah, would yeah. you read this quote for the listener?
1: <laughs> According to the Stoics, all vice was resolvable into folly. According to the Christian principle, it is all the effect of weakness. I think there's a real chance that you, being a smart game creator, will have chosen things that are... I'm actually going to say that I think that this is Donna Tart.
0: This is, of course, John yeah. Quincy Adams.
1: <laughs> mm, fascinating. Here's,
0: here's the thing that, like, kind of makes his work a little bit. Mm-hmm. The, the, the narrator, whose name I can't remember, the character from The Secret History, uh... His inner monologue is, like, very baroque.
1: Yeah, on purpose. That's his whole deal.
0: Yeah. Okay, up next.
1: Beauty is rarely soft or consolatory. Quite the contrary. Genuine beauty is always quite alarming. I think this is Donna Tartt. Is this the part of the quote that goes on to be, like, beauty is violence? Yep. Yeah, that's, like, good this shit. This is, of
0: course, Donna Tart. Up next.
1: I realized that the childish impression I had always had of my father as just lawgiver was entirely wrong. I'm gonna go Donna Tart. This does not feel like Quincy's attitude towards his father.
0: I have many questions about Quincy's attitude towards his father, Mm -hmm. which we probably already covered in the episode. (laughs) This is, of course, Mm -hmm. Donna Tart. Mm -hmm. This is uh, part of the end of The Secret History. There's a run of like three pages i assume because it was five minutes of audiobook (laughs) that really made me laugh which is uh massive spoilers for the secret history i guess skip ahead (laughs) if you want to read it but at the end when their when their professor finds out that they've done a murder and decides not to do anything about it there's like three pages of character assassination on the guy (laughs) just like he was looking back on him he was so immoral he like just really only was looking out for number one and it even goes so far as to say one time george orwell met him and wrote about how shitty he was
1: (laughs) yeah i guess when your teacher catches you in a murder you want him to be jimmy stewart in rope not the professor from the secret history (laughs)
0: Exactly. And th- this is from that passage where the narrator's like, now that I've reevaluated my terrible professor, I'm also starting to think my dad sucked.
1: <laughs> sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Up next, Hannah leading two to one. Mm-hmm.
1: To furnish the means of acquiring knowledge is the greatest benefit that can be conferred upon man. I believe this is John Quincy Adams.
0: You would be correct.
1: Yeah, man loved education.
0: Man loved education. I'm not feeling so great about the game so far, <laughs> but I did trick you once. You did. So at least there's that.
1: You got me once.
0: Up next.
1: To be absolutely free, one is quite capable, of course, of working out these destructive passions in more vulgar and less efficient ways.
0: No matter the answer, pretty good passage to pick, don't you think? Yeah,
1: that's a good one. Like, I think that, if you feel bad about this game, it might be because you are not as close to John Quincy Adams as I am.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But
1: I think you've done a very good job here. These could all go either way. I'm going to go, I'm not positive on this one, but I'm going to go Donna Tart.
0: This is, of course, Donna nice. Tart. Nice. Okay. Up next. Oh, and yeah, that uh, the, I, I, I do realize that I could make games that were. More alien to you, but with this and the Virginia game, I'm really like, Let me let me destroy her at her own craft.
1: <laughs> and yet I am up four to one.
0: Mm, yeah, it's not really working.
1: I'm smart next. and I'm educated and I continue to educate myself as an adult. If we are mm. strong enough in our souls, we can rip away the veil and look that naked, terrible beauty right in the face. Let God consume us. I'm gonna go Donna Tart.
0: This is of course yeah. Donna Tart. She doesn't
1: really feel like John Quincy's vibe.
0: Dude talks about God a lot. Yeah, no, he's a
1: devout guy, um, which he came to as an adult. He was like, I'm going to get I mean, really into God as a grown up.
0: He's a devout guy, but he's not devout in a keeping it to himself kind of way. Uh, is I just want to pick up on.
1: Yeah, he, whatever. You know, as goes. It's okay. You don't have to be secret about it. I also just don't think he would use the word naked.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, final question. Hannah just uh, flat out has one, but I do have (laughs) one more slide. Mm
1: -hmm. Death fixes the relation existing between the departed spirit and the survivors upon Earth. Mm, This could go either way. Mm. I'm going to go John Quincy.
0: This is John Quincy Adams. Mm, All right. Hmm. I
1: think part of the Mm. trick for me on this game Was I think Donna Tartt, and especially The Secret History, has a really sort of like sour attitude, right? And and that is reflected in the prose. That like the philosophy ensconced in that book is really like curdled. Yeah. And John Quincy like was a man who had faith, belief, hope felt strongly Mm. that things were good and could be good in a way that I don't think the secret history does. And that helped guide some of the things I wasn't sure about when I had to make a guess.
0: I I also will say that pretty much every time there was an ellipsis in this, an ellipsis rather, uh, it was because uh, Adams was saying something like, thereupon. And I was like, god (laughs) damn it!
1: (laughs) He lived in such an era where one would put a thereupon. (laughs)
0: Exactly.
1: Exactly.